Hello and welcome to Noise Creators episode 26. My name is Jesse Cannon and I'm your host for this. Today's guest is Chad Coppelin. Chad is an awesome engineer producer out of Norman, Oklahoma. Chad has a pretty crazy wide variety on his uh, discography. Everything from Sufjan Stevens to Avril Lavigne, which I don't know how you end up with those two names together, but he starts to tell us. Uh, Train, Kelly Clarkson, Third Eye Blind, Bronze Show, Bronze Radio Return. All sorts of stuff. Chad is super, super, super knowledgeable, as you'll hear in this. I think we have a fun talk that's a little bit different from some of the other episodes, and I think it's a really good time. Uh, you should head to Chad's Noise Careers profile, check out his discography, his bio, and poke around, listen to his Spotify playlist, and check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out. And please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? I am at my home studio, so I have SM7 into an Apollo Twin. Nice. Very very classic home studio setup. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about your background in music? So I played piano. I mean, I took piano lessons, guitar lessons, just as a kid growing up from when I was five or six on, but didn't really get interested in it till high school. And then I switched music teachers. I ended up going with a professor from OU who got me really interested in recording and some... He was a keyboard player for a band in the 60s which the name escapes me but um, mm. he got me interested in Hammond organ and Worley's and Rhodes and some of that stuff um, and then talked me into going to um, University of Oklahoma for music composition so yeah that was kind of my in into just you know really becoming interested in music and how did that translate into producing you know, I was playing in a band um, in high school and we had a storage space um, where we had some gear set up and we slowly started picking up, you know, a four track cassette and then upgraded to a four track mini disc way back in the day. And we would just record ourselves and then friends would come over to record. Over the course of about a year and a half, I made a record with a local guy named Ryan Lindsay. Oh, okay. When yeah. When we were about 21, 22. And that record um, people liked. So mm -hmm. I started making more records for people around here. It got so busy that I had to quit my band I was playing with. And next thing I knew, I was like, man, I guess, I guess this is my job. That's pretty cool. So when you say it was your job, was that at your own studio? Was that you working out of another studio? What, how was that trajectory? 
So we had this little rehearsal space. My dad actually owned the building, but we just had a small corner. And so as it slowly grew, we would kind of take over more of the area until one of my friends and I, uh, this guy Jared Evans, I produce with and record with a lot. We approached my dad about renting the whole building. And so he got another space and we kind of took over the whole facility and ended up remodeling. And I mean, this is over the course of, you know, eight to ten, to eight to ten years, but that's kind of how we got into it. Nice. And so can you tell us a little bit about your studio? Yeah, it's called Blackwatch Studios. It's in Norman, Oklahoma. And yeah, it's just a cool vibey spot. I'm not one of those guys that like, I'm not trying to have the coolest studio. I enjoy working mm. all over, but it's a really great space for overdubs for uh, any project that I want to, you know, separate out. And it's not going to be like, a, it's not this classic rock room where you're going to have, you know, eight guys set up at the same time to be recording. The cool thing about Blackwatch is just, we've got a lot of keyboards, um, a lot of just vintage gear. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fun place to make a record. Nice. I was going to ask you, uh, so, so, so what about it makes it unique? And is there any cool equipment you could tell us about? Yeah. Uh, so we're just kind of pack rats, Jared and I, the, guy, mm-hmm. the other guy that cones the studio. So we just have a lot of, you know, we'll go to vintage stores and thrift stores and search Craigslist all the time, but we just have a ton of synths and old keyboards, Optigan, Mini Moog, wow. a couple of Rhodes, a couple of CP70s, a couple of pianos that are cool. It's it's so funny the Optagon has made so many cameos on this podcast for being such an obscure piece of gear. <laughs> That's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first time I saw one was in a thrift store in LA. Mm-hmm. Or it was actually a music store and it was priced at like 2500 bucks. I was like, man, this is amazing. I have to have it, but I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And I came back to Oklahoma like two weeks later. I was shopping for clothes and in the corner they had one marked at $5.99, $5.99. What? Um, so I bought it and then two weeks later I went back to the same spot and they had another one for $5.99. So I bought that one too. Wow. That's, so, that's the benefits was, of Oklahoma right there. Exactly. It was pretty great. That does not happen in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where I live. I'm sure it does. <laughs> yes. Cool. So let's get into... Uh, so. Is keyboard your only instrument, or do you play any other instruments? Keyboard, bass, guitar. I'm just kind of your standard rock fair. I do drum programming. I don't mm. necessarily play drums and horns and strings and all that stuff I don't touch, but I would say keys and bass are my two main instruments. Cool. And so we have like a saying on this podcast, like so on one side of the spectrum, there's like the Steve Albinis who like they just get your takes. They don't really comment on you know, arrangements or anything like that. And then you have like a John Feldman who totally rewrites your songs for you. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum in most projects that you work on? I would say most projects, I respect Steve Albini. I think he does Mm -hmm. great records. I'm probably the opposite. And mainly I just, I I like to find bands that want the input. I don't, if a band doesn't want the input, I don't give it. You know, at this point in my career, I just, I always say to a band like, hey, let's do a song, see how it goes. If you're not having fun, I'm probably not either. Mm. So I prefer to work with bands that like collaboration, like ideas. And if they don't dig it, you know, then we have those battles. But yeah, I would say I'm I'm definitely on the other side of the coin than Steve Albini. Cool. And what do you think you bring to records most often? I have just a lot of synths, a lot of keyboards, mm. a lot of ways to make sounds. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, yeah, that's a way to do it. And a band will come in and say, hey, we really like this song from so-and-so. And it's like... That's cool, but let's not make it sound like the song you like. Mm-hmm. Let's explore and try to do something different and kind of show them, you know, here's 10 other ways we could do that. And, you know, usually that 
they get inspired and we kind of just form something new. Those are the most fun projects for sure. A lot of creators don't always get as that, like no one wants to hear your imitation of that. They want to hear you do it, doing something where you take that to the next level and take it past what that person already did. Yeah, totally. And it, you know, I think referencing other bands, a lot of people are afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Everyone does it, but I worked with a producer one time and he called it music recall. Mm. And I thought that was a cooler way to think about it. It's not that I'm ripping off this band or this band, but if you have the music recall and you have, you know, if you listen to and enjoy music and remember things that you like, you can recall like, hey, the sound from this song from this band mm -hmm. might be a, a cool take on what you're doing. So that kind of changed my outlook on that whole thing. I, I like that. That's really, really cool. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Demolitis comes yep. to mind, which I'm sure you've had plenty of people say that. Yes. That can go both ways. If a band hasn't demoed out and then they try something and then, you know, they come back a week later and it's like, hey man, we really don't like the direction of the song. We thought it was going to sound like this. But if a band has demos that they spent a lot of time on and then you're just replacing parts and replacing sounds, that can get semi-frustrating because it's like, man, you guys spent four days on that snare sound, maybe that's better than what we can do in 15 minutes, you know, throwing up mics. So mm. I would say that's, I wouldn't call it a mistake. I would just say that's one of the, one of the cons to modern recording from my perspective. Now I say that thinking the records I've done with the input of bands, having the ability to have GarageBand, Logic, Pro Tools, whatever they use, Ableton, the records I've done are better because the band has more collaboration. They have a bigger knowledge of what's going on but it's definitely harder just like a photographer trying to get a cool photo and it's like well i did that on instagram last week you know it's mm -hmm. there's just a lot more tools for everyone so for better or worse it's made my job harder but i think it's made records better yeah i think that it's made records better and occasionally you get a personality who really has a hard time resetting their ear to it that can really mess things up but i think overall we don't have like you know what's nice about those demos is we really do have a better place to jump off from yeah exactly and i would say two records that, that come to mind one of the worst experiences i've had in the past two years was because the band had two flushed out of demos mm. and we were trying to match or replace just what they had done and my favorite record over the past two years that i've worked on the band had killer demos and we just made them better so hmm. you know it goes both ways I, i'm right there with you what's a big mistake or a smart thing you see bands do with vocals as far as big mistake, nothing comes to mind other than thinking that a nice mic is going to give you a better take. Mm. And so you get pumped up and, you know, let's spend an hour getting the vocal sound and then, oh shit, you can't sing because you have a cold or because you've thought about it too much or you're trying too hard. On that note, when I record a band, I like to, whatever the scratch vocal is, I make sure that the sound is good enough to keep. Whether it's, you know, U87, SM7, 58, doesn't matter. I just make sure that it can be usable because... I would say 60% of the time we end up using the scratch vocal. Hmm. Um, wow. That's a lot. You know, that's if the arrangement hasn't changed or words haven't changed, but if it's possible to keep, it seems like it gets used somewhere in the song or the record. But I'd say the smartest thing people do is experiment with effects and kind of know how they like their voice. And, you know, I work, I, I keep mentioning this project that I really enjoyed working on. It's a band called sports mm -hmm. that are from Norman where i where my studio they is. seem to be getting a good amount of hype. I feel like I'm seeing them a lot on my Twitter feed. Yeah, they're super cool band, super fun to work with. And they're really young, so they're really excited. And it's like, if I 
you know, like, hey, let's slow this song down, you know, 45 beats per minute and try this. They're like, awesome, let's do it. You know, where other bands are like, no, I don't know. So Mm -hmm. they're fun from that perspective, but they experiment a lot with pedals when they're recording and it's like, you know, phaser pedals, spring reverb stuff. And so when they come in, I would say one of the things that I'm always trying to do is find a new way to make a record sound like it's already existed. Hmm. Meaning like when I listen to a record I enjoy, it's like, man, I'm not thinking how do they record that? I'm just enjoying it. Mm. So it's like watching a film. It's like if you can get that layer of, I don't know what's happening, but that looks great. I'm just going to enjoy it. I think when bands experiment with how they like their vocals to sound and have these little tricks, that just gives you another step in that direction. I I like that a lot. That's a great way to put it. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? You know, I worked with a pop artist one time and the producer... I was actually engineering, but Mm. I thought this was cool. We did a bunch of vocal takes, comped the vocal, named it, you know, working comp. And that was just, you know, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That night, went out, had some drinks, and it was like, hey, my voice is feeling pretty good. Let's go try it again. Re-sing it, you know, a little bit of alcohol in there. A couple days later, sing it in the morning. And so then we had these, like, three different times. One when you're feeling loose and drunk, one when you're, like, mourning, but you get some cool stuff in your throat. And then one when you're just singing at 3 p.m. and you're recording like you normally would and so then we comp from that and i would say 80 percent of it was the the original 3 p.m take but a couple words a couple lines came from these other um, moments when you're just feeling differently emotionally and vocally and i've tried to do that more the budget doesn't always allow for that but i think it's definitely a cool a cool trick that's that's funny i you, you know i had a very similar experience I've incorporated that same thing into like when I have a longer time because obviously that vocal emotions super important. One of the other things I think is interesting with that technique too is I worked with a guy and it was like one of those funny things. It was like my one of my favorite singers I've like listened to in years, and he came in and he did the vocal like he's like just give me a mic. I'm just gonna run through this thing, and it was fucking terrible. And I'm like, oh my god, like what? What the hell? Like I love this guy's vocals. Is it me? Like what? The hell is it? But then he's like, okay, run me a rough mix. And what he did while I tracked the guitar is he sat there listening to it, writing on a pen and paper all the little inflections and little things he wanted to do. Then came and just every time we redid the vocal, it went up 25% and then it was fucking amazing. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I've had people, I've I had a girl that was having problems getting the part right, so I had her sing it. I timed the vocal, gritted it on mm. tools, tuned the shit out of it and then had her sing to that learn the song as if it was someone else's song Mm. and then she sang it great and then we didn't tune it and didn't have to time it and it sounded awesome that's that's pretty pretty cool i I like reverse engineering and you know it's the funny thing of like you know when people talk about like the class that hates auto-tune it's like there's the perfect use for it is showing somebody how it could sound and then putting the human element into it yeah exactly and i think you know in that take we probably used you know you know, 10 words in the whole song from the tune take just mm-hmm. because they sounded better. But overall, it felt really human and it felt great. Um, the other thing I've seen people do, um, I worked with an artist that he could not sing when he wasn't holding a guitar. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we just ah. had him, we taped up the strings on a strat and had him play the song while he sang and put like a baffle, you know, between his mouth and his kind of against his chest, on hmm. his wrists and... uh then he his timing was way better he felt way better he felt like he was performing and you know and that uh, sorry last thing no it's great this is great stuff the uh the other i worked with a guy that he was actually a jazz pianist (laughs) i have ended up doing way more kinds of records than i'm probably qualified to do but um 
he just could not perform. And one of the guys in the band pulled me aside and said, hey, he is a performer. He likes when people are in the room. You should call some people and, you know, just have some drinks in the, in the control room while we're tracking. So I hit up some friends like, hey, we're having some whiskey. You guys want to come by? And, you know, ended up being 10 people just kind of hanging out. And he just came to life. Mm. And the next, you know, three, four takes were just so much better. And he just could pay attention more when he knew someone was listening. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? I would say five years ago, Mm -hmm. it would be this big emotional thing. And we'd have to have this big chat about it and talk and see what happened. You know, these days, I feel like I'll kind of show them like, hey, like, let's try this. And if they don't dig it, I'll go fully down the path with them for what they want. Mm. And then maybe just like, you know, that night, if we're hanging out, just kind of replay my version and just be like, any chance that you still like some of this, we kind of went down your path. And it's kind of more of like a, I feel like people push back harder if you're saying no before you give them the chance to try their idea. So I've found it's easier to let them go down their path and then say, hey, we did it your way. Can we go back and check this out? And I would say that that makes for a, a better studio experience for everyone. And I don't always get my way as much, but that's fine. It's a collaboration. It's their music. Yes, totally. So we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to get into how you feel about some modern production tools. Real quick, how do you feel about amp simulators in your productions? I use them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not opposed to it. I dig it. And I say, I will say that I kind of softened towards them. I was working on a record in Prague. Mm-hmm. I was co-producing with another guy, and... The artist pulled me aside and was like, hey, I'm not digging this song, and I was supposed to have the day off. And so I was just kind of working on, I brought my Apollo twin and laptop and stuff. And so I ended up just kind of like exploring a lot more of that world than I ever had. Hmm. And finding, you know, like a cool rolling jazz chorus for this part that I wanted to play. And then was like, oh, shit, we need big rhythms on the chorus. And anyways, all that to say, I, I thought they were cheesy. And then when I actually had to use them, I thought I made something really cool with it. So um, it it definitely softened my take towards them. And then, I I mean, I've worked on records where we take a DI and, you know, you're recording the Marshall or whatever and take a DI and then you kind of beef it up with like a fake simulator as well. But I I think they sound pretty freaking good. How about uh, sampled drums? You know, I'm not opposed to anything these days. (laughs) Gotcha. Um, it, it just depends on the record, you know, like I hate if I spend a long time on a drum sound and we, one record comes to mind in particular, we had a, this old Camco kick drum and this Radio King snare and it just sounds nice. so good, so fat, so cool. And we just kind of wanted this just, you know, Beck seed change vibe. Mm. And uh, that's, another, that's another one on this podcast that, that is in, along with my own, like that's just the drum sound of that style <laughs> of the modern era. It really is. And we sent it to the mix engineer and got it back and it was just like sample replaced. And it was like, dude, what are you doing? So I mm. think, you know, there's a time for it. I've, it seems like I've worked on a lot of records lately, lately that are eighties inspired. Mm. And so we're just layering, um, you know, there's a Lindrum at the local music store. They let me come borrow all the time and I'll layer. Going to say that Lindrum and an Oberheim going hard. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, if I'm working on a pop record or something, I'm, I'm mixing like a, country rock thing right now which is surprisingly really fun Hmm. but you know i threw up slate trigger and added some samples in that just to beef it up and i think it just depends on the style of music if it's a folk thing or if it's a chill indie project it doesn't make sense but other times it does nice how about pitch correction yeah i mean i'm 
using Melodyne quite a bit. Again, it depends on the project. I just did a record for this band called Broncho. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we don't touch autotune. We don't touch samples. We don't touch any of that stuff. It just doesn't make sense for the band. Mm-hmm. The band Sports, we're trying to get like a very tight, like, you know, octave vocal thing going on. And so we'll Melodyne the balls off of some parts and leave other parts kind of pitchy and again i think it just as long as you're smart about it i think it's a great tool to have nice how about favorite soft sense i would say i mean i find myself using native instruments a lot mm. but as far as actual sense i can't seem to get anything as good as the real thing so i'll i'll use it for like if i just can't play something if it's too fast or this little part i'll program it mm. and then filter it and then add some effects to it and then kind of tuck it in there with like a real Juno or Chroma or something else. You know, if it's just some crazy, crazy fast idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say as far as soft synth stuff go, I find myself using Morph Odor a lot, mm-hmm. which isn't even a soft synth, but yeah. kind of. Cool. Do you master your own records? I do not. I like to have someone else's take on what I'm doing. And there's a guy named Dave Cooley that mm-hmm. I work with a lot. He's one of the first mastering guys I've worked with. Also a guy named Dan Millis out of New York that I've worked with a lot recently. But they're the guys that I used to send stuff off to master and get it back and be like, well, I can't really hear a difference, but I know you're supposed to get a record mastered. So I Mm. guess they did it. (laughs) But those two guys, they send it back and it's like, oh man, they'll make it sound way better or they'll bring out stuff that I was like, oh man, I knew I should have fixed that when I did it. And so then I'll have to go back into a mixed revision and... (laughs) But it makes the records better. And having someone else's ears, Dave has called me before and been like, hey man, I think this song is really great. I think you need to put a vocal widener on on the lead vocal and it'll be better. It's like, awesome. Hmm. And it it is. Nice. So how long, you know, usual case scenario, how long does it take you to record a song and how long does it take you to mix a song? I always like to have two days um, to record a song. Mm -hmm. A minimum, I prefer three if budget allows so if we're doing a 10 song record i'd like to have a month at least Mm -hmm. but 20 no less than 20 days as far as mixing goes i usually put down a song a day Mm -hmm. but try to mix um two songs a day and then do revisions um for the end parts i I would say i mix a record in eight days or so a 10 song record gotcha what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer i worked with a guy named scott salter one time names familiar can you tell us who who he's worked with he did a record for john vanderslice i think with john vanderslice cellar door okay yeah i know that one yeah pale horse the first track off that record is one of my all-time favorites sonically just badass songs so yeah uh, i were i was playing keys um and bass for this band called esther drang that he produced and he was like, man, if you can't get a good sound or you're having problems, just filter it. Um, and he had this Allison Labs filter, which was used for like an old cinema, and they would use it to tune the room, basically, I guess. Mm-hmm. I have since purchased one of those, and I use that and uh, the filter in the Mini Moog. Um, and I also have the, the Mini, uh, the Moger Foger oh, nice. uh, filter pedal. But yeah, that is another thing that it's like, if something is sounding weird, you can't figure it out, filtering just makes something sound cooler. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no other way for me to put it, but um, uh, there's also an, an old Akai mic pre that I had modded with a tone knob, which basically acts as a filter because I can just make it, it's almost like a cutoff frequency on the top because it just hmm. gets really dark. But yeah, if I'm recording acoustic and it's like, man, what's a cooler take on this acoustic? What's a cooler take on this? Like if someone wants to add cello, I hate cello, <laughs> but really, well. if, if, if you, I mean, I say that that's, it's stupid to hate anything, but it's one of those instruments that I feel like it sounds like a guy just kind of jamming along with a band. But the second you like filter it, it sounds like 
old school and it, I really like that. One of the questions from the view from now is what's your ma- musical bane of your existence? So is it cello or is there something else? <laughs> okay. Well, I will, I will preface with cello in the Midwest. Ah, okay. Is a thing. Uh, there's a lot of people that grow up playing in uh, churches mm-hmm. and there will always be a cellist on stage just jamming along, just playing like thirds and fifths, the whole song. And that style of playing on strings, violin or cello, primarily i just don't like mm. so saying i don't like cellos is really stupid because i love cello done correctly but i find that i've just recorded a lot of things like that in the past so for a while i would say that was the bane of my existence now i would say it's acoustic guitar mm. and not because i don't like it but because a lot of people don't play it well and it doesn't record super easy so i find myself spending a long time on acoustic sounds mm. or uh, having someone ghost replay acoustic parts on records. That is a thing. What's one of the best moments you've had in the studio? One of my favorite records I was a part of, it's actually a band called Gunger, and they brought in just some killer musicians. And I, I wouldn't consider myself this bad A session bass player, but they asked me to come in and play bass just to have a slightly different take on bass as a keyboard player. So I brought a bunch of synths and then also brought some basses. But um, they brought in this guy, Aaron Sterling, to play drums, who was phenomenal. This guy, Rob, uh, Rob, uh, Robbie G on, mm-hmm. he actually was playing synth. He had an Oberheim OBX and just everybody's creativity. And we were down at Sonic Ranch in El Paso. Mm. Um, just those five days of making music were just so refreshing, so fun hearing everybody's, I don't know, we would take this song that just felt really normal. And then somebody would be like, oh my gosh, what if we do this? And then we would just stay up till two in the morning playing music and it felt like we were in high school again. And then another record that comes to mind, um, Sufjan Stevens came and recorded for a couple weeks. I saw that on your discography. That's pretty rad. He was here for a couple weeks last summer. That was really refreshing. Just the way he plays every instrument, he just is a phenomenal musician. I just remember at one point, I mean, he threw down this acoustic part and we kind of like did some like creative editing on that. And then he put piano over the top of it and we were adding like, swipes across the piano strings through PCM 70 and then throwing in these tape delay things. And anyways, it was kind of like, it was tricks that I had seen before used before in the past. But one of those things where like, you know, piano is a great instrument, but I haven't used it because I don't sit down and play piano a lot because I just, you know, I've done that. But Mm -hmm. having him come in, it felt like all the tricks I had done in the past, he just brought this new life to because he's just such a freaking great musician. And yeah, the, uh, so those two records, I would say, were two of my favorite experiences in the past couple of years. Nice. Do you have a worst moment and what you learned from it? <laughs> I definitely have a worst moment. I would say, I mean, I don't know how much I can talk about two of the projects because they signed NDAs. But working with a band out in L.A., they wanted to do everything on tape. But they weren't good enough, per se, to be recording to tape. So we were at East West Studios and... We were recording to Pro Tools at the same time, only to test out edits. So we would basically mark, you know, like take three of the drums from one minute to two minutes, take two from two minutes to three minutes, so on and so forth. And we'd do a test edit on Pro Tools and be like, yeah, that's the spot. Then we would make the edits on the tape and, you know, from, you know, three different reels, which was actually, that was really Mm. fun. Um, that was that was my first time to really have to do that. I'd seen other people do it, but producing and engineering, that was the first time I had to do it. The hard part was everything sounded really rough. Mm. So the band left for the day and we had to 
then transfer everything back to Pro Tools, edit, get everyone a little bit more kosher sounding good, and then go back to tape. And so I had been up all night, and the next day we start fresh again, supposedly. And I've been there since, you know, four or five in the morning, mm. or till four or five in the morning, and we're starting at nine the next morning. And that was just a tough record. Mm. But, you know, that's just part of it so that's a it's a, <clears throat> it's a lot of reels to be uh doing edits from so you're saying you had three uh three machines locked together are you saying we had one machine we were staying under 24 tracks but we you know we were at 30 ips so it, we had like 15 minutes mm-hmm. on each reel so we probably did eight takes of each song so then it was like well we like the guitar from this reel oh wow yeah wow so that wasn't easy but it was it was fun and we weren't just taking a guitar, obviously, for that reel, but we were like, we liked the, you know, 20 seconds of this take from this reel, mm-hmm. 20 seconds of this take, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I don't miss those days at all. So let's get into some of your personal taste in uh, musical growth. What's a perfect record someone else has made, and what about it makes it perfect? My favorite record of all time is Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. You're, you're a good Oklahoma much. boy. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with him from being from Oklahoma. I just love that record mm. dave fridman's one of my favorite producers. yeah same here love the sounds he gets he's such a badass as far as why i just think it has a lot of great elements it has as a synth keyboard guy it has a ton of that i really like the nintendo 64 soundtrack sounding stuff mm. there's a lot of that going on there's a lot of killer room mic drum stuff cool editing it kind of like combines all the stuff i like where it, it still sounds human in a way but they're you know looping parts of the drums, editing parts of the drums, using vocal effects, using all this stuff. And they're kind of using technology to their advantage without it sounding like, you know, super bland. Just hands down, favorite record of all time. Nice. Um, So could you tell me about five records in your musical growth and how they shaped you? I would say that I didn't intently listen to music until I got to college. And that's when I discovered Radiohead and was like, oh my gosh, there's different kinds of music out there than George Strait mm. and whatever's on the radio. Being from Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Rocks. But yeah, that, that record blew my mind. Kid A specifically at that time. And then I went back and discovered OK Computer and fell in love with that band, those records. That also kind of pushed me from like, I started off kind of playing like Hammond organ, Whirly Roads, and that kind of pushed me into synth world. Mm. And I didn't know what a mini mug was, but I used some money I had gotten from graduation, high school graduation, and I bought a mini mug Model D. Not knowing what it was, never having played one, hmm. got it for pretty cheap on eBay. And, you know, that that purchase helped me kind of shape some of the ways I started playing and think about music. But, hmm. So that was really cool. Then what else? I mean, so from there, that's when I discovered Yoshimi on Flaming mm-hmm. Lips. Fell in love with that record, fell in love with those sounds. Further dove into the synth world. I will say Rolling Stones maybe specifically Let It Bleed. Always been a fan of the Stones. Just when I was a junior in high school, the girl I had a crush on um, hit me up and was like, hey, I've got a ticket to the Stones. They played at the OU football stadium, and I went. And so I kind of liked them, but didn't know that much about Mm. them. You know, casually listened, enjoyed it. Um, And then I played on a record down at Dockside Studios in Lafayette, Louisiana. And Daryl Jones, who's played bass for the Stones for the past 22, 23 years at this point, he was playing bass on the project and the project was whatever. It was just like a pop singer songwriter thing. Um, but he and I hung out a lot and there was a bar on the, like a few miles away and we would go have drinks and he would tell me stone stories. And so that kind of solidified them as like this 
legendary band. Hmm. You know, I love listening to them, but when I think about the experiences I've had with them, it's just incredible. Nick Lowe, The Impossible Bird, hmm. is a is a top record for me, and I I would consider that record a palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. Anytime I get in my car after a session or a long day or something, I can always put that record on and just relax and chill. Not think about what they're doing. Just enjoy the sounds. Enjoy the songwriting. You're reaffirming my friend who said uh, that Nick Lowe has no fans who've never touched a recording uh, piece of gear. <laughs> I, I totally agree yeah, that. It's, it really is a thing. It's like all Nick Lowe fans, audio engineers and producers, are wannabe audio engineers and producers. Yeah, Tell us more about that record, true. though. So, yeah, I, just the songwriting's incredible. The sounds, it just, it sounds so old school. Mm-hmm. Beautiful songs, killer bass playing. I mean, I <laughs> I have no, nothing other to say about it than it's just a great listen. One of the songs on there was my wife and I's first dance. Oh, nice. Wedding, so that brings back great memories. It's just a great record. And, you know, I hate the show Daryl's House. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever I seen ha- that I probably have, yeah. <laughs> it's so cheesy. I actually watch it because it's mm-hmm. fun to watch, but I hate it. But Nick Lowe was on there one time and it just felt like oil and water. Like mm. him, what I thought about him and him as a musician and then him with Daryl Hall was just the funniest thing to watch. <laughs> and he would, Daryl Hall would go for these chords on acoustic that were just, just did not fit in these Nick Lowe songs. Mm. And it was, it was great. It would just kind of reaffirmed my love for Nick Lowe that like Daryl Hall couldn't make anything work in these songs. That's, that's really funny. <laughs> and you know, Hall Notes, whatever, it's great. I'd not even say anything about that, mm-hmm. but. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen that show, yeah, you would there's the, 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 it's definitely the more um, sterilized uh, environment of performances uh, compared to a lot of yeah. the great. You know, there's so many great places you can see bands play, and it actually sound real today on YouTube. That that show just makes it seem a little. It's just a little off in this world. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like pretending it's, Full House is reality TV. Exactly, and you should look up that Nick Lowe one. It's I fun. totally will be doing that. Somebody left this record at my studio and it just like in Sharpie said Richard Swift. And so I threw it in my car. I didn't know who left it at my studio. It was just on the couch. And for like a whole summer, this was like three or four years ago for a whole summer. I learned those songs, listened to them, loved them, had no clue about Richard Swift. Don't know why I didn't just hop on the internet and look up who he was or anything about him, but I didn't. And I just assumed the record was from the sixties. Well, my buddy, James McAllister, who was a drummer, hit me up out of the blue and was like, Hey dude, I'm coming through Norman. I'm playing at the Opolis tonight, this local club here in town. He said, I'm playing with a guy named Richard Swift. I was like, Holy shit. Like he's still alive. You know him. You're playing with him. He's playing at the Opolis. Like what? So I ended up Googling him, finding out he's a new artist that just does really cool records that sound old. Anyway. So I went to the show. I ended up actually playing keys on that show. Cause they didn't have a keyboard or they had a keyboard player, but he was playing. There was just a lot of keyboard parts. on mm. the record. Um, and I knew him like front to back because I listened to that record nonstop for like four That's months. That's funny. Really love that record. I would say it's in a similar camp to the Nick Lowe Impossible Bird thing as far as a record you can just kind of put on. And it's a semi-slow burn. Mm. It takes a second, but it's so killer. And since then, going back to favorite producers, I would say he's another one. He's done a lot of killer records over the past few years. He did the tennis stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. Pure Bathing Culture, which is that band. Some of their first stuff is so refreshing and inspiring to me um now i think he plays bass on the black keys and is helping them produce some of their new stuff oh, interesting um, 
but uh, he's he's killer. He's you totally segged into my next question, which is uh, three favorite producers. Yeah, so I named two: uh, Dave Fridman, Richard Swift. I think maybe third one. I don't necessarily like every record he does, but Daniel Lanois. Mm. Just the idea of you know Willie Nelson El Teatro renting out an old theater in Mexico and taking a bunch of gear down there and you know really making the record about that space and not about you know how do we so let me go from there i like that idea and so there's a few bands and a few people i've collaborated with where we've tried to kind of get in that headspace and it's like hey let's go to a destination recording spot or let's go to a farm in oklahoma and take a bunch of Mm. gear and you really have to have someone that's open to the idea of like hey maybe we're not going to get the most perfect vocal sound but there's going to be something about this experience that makes it, you know, a moment in time and really time stamps that record and that experience, which some bands are into, some aren't. Some just want, you know, the biggest kick and the best snare and the greatest vocal sound. That's mm-hmm. great. But I really enjoy those times when you can get out of town and go find that spot and just no distractions, time stamp the record. Um, but yeah, Daniel Lenoir would be a third one. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite record of uh, recent times and what inspires you about it? Probably Mac DeMarco's Salad Days. Mm. Again, I mean, there's nothing groundbreaking about it. Just good songs. I like his use of tape delay and some of that stuff. Um, cool drum parts, drum sounds. To me, he's kind of like a modern day, like, Pedro the Lion. Wow, I, 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 that's funny. I never uh, I never picked up that comparison. I'm going to have to re-listen now. Because I, I, I actually am an active hater of Mac DeMarco, but I love Pedro the Lion. So now you're going to make me reconsider my uh, stance. Well, you know... I think he's one of those guys that um, I had a band kind of like lead me into it. It's kind of like Springsteen. It's like mm. some people hate Bruce Springsteen, but you get somebody that really loves him and tells you stories and like, oh no, listen to this song and then this song and this song. And that kind of happened with Mac DeMarco mm. where it's like, hey, check out Chamber of Reflection. It's like, oh man, I love that synth. I love those drum sounds. And then it just kind of became the record I put on at the end of the day after working. And records for me are like these moments in time. And that record was, I was in El Paso a lot one summer making a bunch of records and we'd go to, that studio is like a property and there's one room where there's a pool table and a great sound system and you just drink beer and kind of wind down for the night. And that was kind of the go-to record. So that record just reminds me of just windows open, nice El Paso nights. <laughs> nice. So I guess our last question is, uh, what have you been working on lately? You know, this year has been funny. Uh, I would say in the past you know, I do more records for shorter periods of time, um, three to four weeks, and, you know, kind of cram it and stuff when I can around those. This year, I have, I worked on a record with the band Broncho, mm-hmm. and we had three and a half months on the calendar wow. for that. Worked with a guy named Andrew Bell, who's been about two and a half months. So those records have taken up a lot of time. Uh, and then a band called Barcelona, mm-hmm. and that's been about a two-month process as well. And that record's been interesting. We started that record. We did an EP at first, decided to make it a 10-song record. Did five more songs that sounded so different from the first batch of five songs, it sparked a side project. So now we're recording an additional five more songs to finish the Barcelona record, and then they're going to have this other side project that's its own thing. But that's been a really fun experience. I'm really excited about that whole record. And then uh, this band Sports that I spoke about, um, we just finished a new seven-song EP that I think is just really killer. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. 
Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 